Welcome to the Share Life Podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to a special edition of the Share Life Podcast. We're in an ongoing series as part of the discovery process for my next book project, From the Garden to the Cross, How Jesus' Harrowing Mission Shows Us the Way Forward. Today in this discussion, we're reflecting on Judas's death and how the money paid to him for his betrayal of Jesus was used by the religious leaders after he returned it. So I'm Jason Scott Montoya, author and creator, sharing stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Today, I'm joined by David, Ashley, and Talitha. Ashley, say hello. Hey. Ashley Christine Williams is a wife, a mother to four, pursuer of truth, avid reader, political enthusiast, and an elementary school teacher. David, say hello. Hello. David Klein is a relationally oriented supply chain leadership, guiding businesses on how to remove operational friction while also growing supplier value. Talitha, say hello. Hi. <laughs> Talitha James Minton is a book lover, writer, learner, creator, wife, and mother with an educational background in classical literature and religious studies. So thank you all for, for joining us on this discussion. Um, let's jump into the passage about Judas um, and his uh, conversation with the religious leaders, the ending of his life, and perhaps the legacy he left behind. Uh, we'll read and discuss my harmonization of the story with the different accounts of Jesus's life with quotes from the New Living Translation. Then we'll explore the story through the following questions. What can we learn about Jesus, humanity, and ourselves from this monumental moment in time? How does it apply to us today? And, for, and, and essentially, you know, what can we learn from this story? So for those of us that are just now joining into this discussion, um, this event that we're speaking of um, takes place after Judas has betrayed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's led the uh, religious leaders um, and some Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden. And so this is um, some point after that um, and uh, after he was paid the 30 pieces of silver. So let's jump into the passage. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen, and then we will uh, go ahead and read this passage here. All right. Um, so this is uh, from two places, Matthew 27, 3 through 10, and Acts 1, 18 through 19, for those that want to look into this. Um, and here we go. Uh, recognizing his betrayal of an innocent man condemned to death, Judas was overwhelmed with remorse for delivering Jesus to the religious leaders. He decided to return the 30 silver coins paid to him for his treachery. In the presence of the leading priests and elders, Judas spoke, I have sinned, for I betrayed an innocent man. Apathetically, they responded, what do we care? That's your problem. Judas, Judas threw the silver coins in the temple and fled. After picking up the silver, the high priest contemplated what to do about the coins. It would not be right to put this money in the temple treasury since it was payment for murder. After Judas departed the temple, he went to the field where he had initiated a land purchase. There he hung himself, and after hanging for some period of time, his body swelled up, split open, and his guts spilled out below. The news of Judas's death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and the parcel of land where he died came to be known as the Field of Blood. The temple leaders decided to finish the land purchase transaction Judas began with the betrayal money and purchased this potter's field, also known as the field of blood where Judas had died, as a cemetery for foreigners. 
These events fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy from 600 years before. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. So my question to all of you, and I'll start us out here, is what in this particular passage, what in this story is what sticks out for you? I think for me, um, there's a lot that's in here, um, and then there's a lot of backstory, and then there's a lot that we can sort of speculate about. Um, but I think the thing that struck me, struck, struck me is just how apathetic the religious leaders were um, to Judas' response. Um, you know, it, the irony of the religious leaders being these um, highly uh, righteous people, supposedly, and they're having this conversation about someone who has turned someone over to be executed, and he's feeling remorse, and yet they could care less. And that's that's one of the things that really really struck me, and and something to to kind of explore further. Um, Ashley, what what is it for you that that sticks out? Yeah, to kind of piggyback off of what you were talking about, the aesthetic response of the religious leaders in a situation to a person coming in and saying, "I have sinned. I have betrayed an innocent man." The pain and emotional response that Judas must have been feeling and having at that time seems so downplayed in this passage to me. Um, his feeling of shame, his concern over what had happened. Um, and we can probably touch into this later in the passage that talks about um, Satan entering into Judas. Um, was that something he knew? Has he just, is that something that we believe happened and going forward, how was Judas responding to that? So down where it talks about the high priest's not wanting to put the payment for the murder back into the temple treasury is an interesting statement to me as well, because they, they didn't have any problem paying for the murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. why the concern now? <laughs> and it's, it's also similar to, um, uh, I think, I believe it's the passage right after this where um, mm -hmm. they, the religious leaders bring Judah or bring Jesus to Pilate but they won't enter the temple because that would make them ceremonial unclean and they can't participate in the Passover. Right. So there's yeah. this, this disconnect that seems obvious to us, obviously looking in hindsight, right. Right. but <laughs> obviously that wasn't what they experienced or saw or, or believed it was. So it's very interesting. So uh, Talitha, what are, uh, what are your first thoughts? What, or what sticks out to you? It always, this story has always struck me as just being so incredibly tragic mm -hmm. that this guy who possibly thought he was doing the right thing to force Jesus to confront, you know, the powers that be and, and do what he thought Jesus needed to do ends up being one of the reasons that he gets killed mm -hmm. and how he gets arrested and just how it it must it, it completely devastated him and you can see it that he's just like i can't believe i did this this is not what was supposed to happen mm -hmm. and so just the fact that he 
he does what he goes and he talks to them and then he ends up killing himself and it's just it's just awful yeah and it's just tragic that that's what he thought was the answer mm -hmm. yeah the tragedy is definitely something that uh, that i lean into and and even in the sense of like you know if he had hit the the timing of his suicide um and the timing of of jesus resurrection like if he had just waited perhaps there would have been an opportunity right um but yeah. to act in in the way that he did in the, the timing of it is is also mm -hmm. what makes it tragic which is is an interesting thing to, to reflect on but yeah. david what what is it for you that that sticks out well i think um the biggest thing is just reading the story from the perspective of judas is very different than when you think about it as you tell it to a a, a toddler or a young child um from Ju jesus perspective um it, it's Judas is just the bad guy. It's kind of like the villain in a, a Disney movie or, or something. We don't really think about why he did what he did or, um, you know, why he was so remorseful that he would go and hang himself. But just that's what was prophesied. And there had to be a bad guy. And that's the role that he played. So um, I, I think it's really fascinating when you read the story from Judas perspective and, and you think about someone that spent so long with Jesus and the disciples and then, um, you know, what, what compelled him to do, uh, you know, a, a fairly small bribe to take a small bribe for, for, um, you know, this betrayal. And then why was he so remorseful? And I, I think as we've, uh, kind of researched and, and talked about that in preparation for this, uh, that that's the thing that's been most interesting to me is just thinking about, uh, his emotional state and his, mm -hmm. his motivations. Um, and then, um, kind of what we learn about Jesus and, and ourselves from thinking about yeah. the story perspective. So so what do you think is going on there? Why do we, why are we so um, inclined to, um, to sort of make Judas separate than ourselves? Like, that's not me. <laughs> He's a bad guy. What's going on there? Well, I think the simple story makes it a little bit more palatable, uh, especially, you know, if we are familiar with the story from a child, um, mm -hmm you know, we just sort of say he's the bad guy and, and, you know, the bad guy is never us. We never identify with the bad guy, um, you know, at least, um, as a young child. And I think, uh, it, when you grow older, you just kind of accept the simple story and, and don't really think about the, the motivations of, of somebody that, you know, why would he spend so long with Jesus? Was it purely, um, nefarious that, that he was just trying to, to get close to, to hurt him for some unknown reason or, you know, was it that he was actually a Jesus follower? And that's that's really uncomfortable to think about because as somebody that follows Jesus, you know, I would like to think that there's no way that I would betray Jesus in that way, especially after walking with him and spending, you know, years with him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if, if we start to think about the story from that perspective, we go, wow, maybe there is a cautionary tale for us about um, checking our own motivations and, and um, kind of what we're wanting from Jesus uh, as we're following Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the thing, one of the things that comes to my mind is, you know, and going back to what you tal said, Talitha, about the tragedy, um, part of, you know, and, and you, I can think of like, there's movies or maybe personal experiences where we do something and, and it's, it, it's wrong, but it's, it's, it's small in our mind, but then it, it unravels really rapidly into like something really big. And that's the impression I get is that whatever Judas did, he didn't anticipate it to unravel the way in which it did. 
And so there's obviously a disconnect between what he was expecting to happen. Um, I don't know if it's simply that he, he thought he was, um, you know, G Jesus was just going to be punished in some kind of a, um, I don't know, imprisoned or something, but didn't expect that he would be cru crucified. And that seems to be the distinction um, between um, the difference between what he was expecting versus what happened. But when you think about the tragedy, Talitha, what, what is, dive into that a little bit deeper and what, what it is you mean and, and how you see that? Well, and I wish I knew how, where this thought process comes from, <laughs> but as a, as a kid, I was always taught that Judas did this because he wanted Christ to be like the warrior. Mm -hmm. to come down, topple everything, start over, wipe it away, get them out of Rome's power, all of that stuff. And so this was his way of forcing Jesus's hand. Like, surely he's not going to let himself get arrested. Surely he's not going to willingly submit to the power of Rome or the power of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. And that's what he did. Yeah. And so I think I was always told it from the perspective that Judas was trying to force who he thought Christ was supposed to be. Yeah. Instead of just accepting that maybe he didn't have the whole picture mm -hmm. and maybe he didn't really know what the end goal was. And maybe the kingdom coming back didn't look the way he thought it should look. He was expecting this triumphant entry of a, you know, a military leader or whatever. And that's not what he had. Yeah. And the fact that he spent so long with Jesus and didn't see that and stuff like didn't, I mean, Jesus isn't known for being, I mean, he's controversial and he, you know, flipped tables in the temple and stuff, but he wasn't a violent guy. Mm -hmm. He wasn't an aggressive guy. Yeah. So I always wonder, I'm like, why, why on earth did you think that this was going to work? But well, what's you go ahead, David. You have to think though, it wasn't just Judas. I mean, it was yeah. all of the disciples. I mean, as we hear about how they reacted to Jesus being crucified and, and even Peter, you know, denying having known Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think all of them were kind of blindsided and you, and you do wonder how was it after spending so long with them and after he said so plainly so many times what was coming um but they they just had their mindset was stuck on a, a physical kingdom and that he was eventually gonna you know be ruler of the earth not a different yeah. kingdom yeah well and i think that the contrast between peter and, and judas is interesting um and to your points you know they're in a weird way it's like jesus is their pawn Judas is acting this way, Peter's acting this way, and and there's actually an interesting intersection. Um, but they're both there's there is a root uh, dynamic there that that's similar in terms of um, that 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 battle, that fight, that um, that over that sort of physical material overthrow with a mm -hmm. with a, a missing of the the spiritual dynamic. Yeah. So how does that? And, and how does, I guess, pull us, Ashley, pull us into the, the dynamic with these religious leaders and, and how does that amplify or, or, or further complexify the situation here? 
Right. I think the religious leaders at the time were struggling to maintain their power after coming under the rule of Rome. Um, having Jesus, even though Jesus was the prophesied Messiah of the Jews, they had known that this person was supposed to be coming, but they also had this vision of what this person was going to be, this warrior Messiah who was going to lead them out of the oppression from Rome, similar to how he led the Israelites out of the oppression from, Egypt, from the Egyptians. And when the Messiah came, they saw that he was not fitting into that mold. That not only was he not fitting into that mold, but he was blatantly calling out their behavior and their sin and telling them that the way they were doing religion was wrong. Um, so now they appear to be fighting two battles on two fronts. They're fighting against Jesus and maintaining their power within their temple and the Jewish religion. And then they're fighting Rome. Mm -hmm. So when you see them going to Rome to get this permission to crucify Jesus, it's almost like they're using this like as a, as a two bird, one stone situation. Yeah. They're like Jesus is going to be a threat to you too. Let us help you. Mm -hmm. and you know this also just end up benefiting us you know you know they thought they were very clever in this situation um and i like what you guys are saying about judas and peter both trying to get everyone seems to be trying to get jesus to be what they want him to be yeah to force his hand into a situation where that they envision how they want yeah. a story to go and when and, you say, when you say that, I mean, I can't help but just think of the political situation we're now in, and it, particularly it the evangelical, where, you know, everyone's Jesus this, Jesus that, he's 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 this political affiliation, that one, right. um, this is what he is or isn't, you know, and we're all using him as a pawn in a very similar way. It seems mm -hmm. like absolutely, we all have. We all want to see our beliefs in the way we view the world is right. We all kind of what David was saying, we never see ourselves as the villain. Um, and so when we don't, when we believe what we're doing is ordained by God, then how could we possibly be wrong? Yeah. And I guess the irony of that, it, it seems like there's an irony because of the story itself, the Judas story, right? Right. David, what do you think? I just think it's funny that everybody thought that Jesus' uh, power and influence would come through force. And, and so it seems to have caught everybody, the religious leaders, Rome, uh, you know, the disciples, and, and especially Judas off guard that, um, you know, in some ways, Judas, I think, banked everything on this, you know, uh, 30 silver coins, um, which, you know, that's a, a few weeks uh, income. So it's not like a life-changing amount of money. I don't think uh, he was motivated by you know, a desire to get rich or, or that he was mm -hmm. going to be set for life or anything. But, you know, he, he thought that that was going to force Jesus's hand um, or at least force something to happen so that there's going to be, you know, some fighting. There's, there's going to be, um, you know, some, some physical battle and, and Jesus's power is going to be manifest in, in, you know, being able to, to um, take physical force. And, and um, Jesus's, you know, solution is just to submit and to, to, um, kind of lay down and, and 
uh, serve. And, and I think that's just, I mean, that's a fascinating part of the gospel itself, but especially in the way that it, um, you know, affected the people around him that were closest to him, um, that were expecting him to rise up and take power. And, and instead, um, you know, he, he applied the servant leadership and, and, you know, dying for the sins of the world rather than, uh, you know, taking over by power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, I guess when we go to the beginning of this passage, you know, Judas has done something um, and, and he's now remorseful. So when you think about what that, what, what does that mean? What's going on? Is he just feeling bad that he, he did something or is he truly feeling remorseful? Like, how do you all, you know, interpret that? Talitha, what do you, what do you think? I always interpreted it like just this ultimate sense of just, guilt mm-hmm. and regret and remorse and horror like being just horrified mm-hmm. that this guy that he's been following for so long is going to be crucified like this is he knows where this is going because he can mm-hmm. see it and it's like I, I never I never assumed he felt anything other than completely awful for the role he played yeah and so what what is how do you connect the dots between that and and taking his own life i think if that's the case and he did take his own life because obviously the different gospels have different some of them say he just fell over and exploded (laughs) some of them say he hung himself and then exploded so who no who knows um but if in fact he did commit suicide it just it just shows that he felt more guilt and more shame about an action that he did than christ ever would have Mm -hmm. like he assumed that oh i've done something horrible this is unforgivable i i gotta go i can't be a part of this anymore no one's going to forgive me. My life is worthless. I'm a horrible person. I'm ending it now. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and then you compare that to Peter, who, I mean, granted, his betrayal, if we're measuring levels of betrayal, Peter's wasn't as bad. <laughs> um, but still, but Peter never doubted forgiveness. He mm-hmm. never doubted that he was wasn't worthy Mm -hmm. and stuff the way judas did like you can see that judas must have just felt so unworthy of Mm -hmm. even the disciples forgiveness at that point thinking that probably jesus was going to die and not come back because that's not what anyone expected yeah well and i think what's interesting and a couple things um you mentioned the the differences in the the accounts of the story and reconciling those I, I, this just occurred to me, but there is an interesting aspect of this, those tensions or those elements almost forcing us to realize this isn't a simple story. Like this is something that we have to reconcile. Mm-hmm. And, um, and our, and is that there for, for us to sort of slow us down enough to notice that, that that's one thing that came to mind. Um, the other thing is, I think to your point is, there is an aspect that perhaps the difference between Peter and, and Judas, with Judas, 
where he was re- he own he was essentially feeling responsible for what he had done and that he was the one in which to to um to um, deal out the justice of what he had done like i did this so in turn i need to punish myself right mm-hmm. whereas peter received um that gift of forgiveness um and 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 so what what's the difference there what's going on but anyway ashley i think you were going to say something uh what do you what's going on just to the point of the suicide with judas um what i see when i look at that story and judas's ultimate suicide is the powerlessness that he must have felt in his ability to correct the situation or come back from it that the suicide was the what he believed was within his power whether that be just for himself or just reparations for his actions. Um, The interesting thing about Judas and Peter too is, is Peter betrays Jesus three times and after each time and asks, repents and asks for forgiveness. Obviously we don't know the timelines of all these things unfolding. Had Judas been able to witness Peter's betrayal would it have made a repentance? Would that have changed Judas's perspective on his own ability to gain forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think there are a lot of what ifs. That being yeah. one of the many, like what if this, what if that, and um, and that's those what ifs almost make the it makes it more tragic. Like wow, right. what if, what if? It's a missed opportunities. That's yeah. right. If he had wa- if he had waited until the resurrection, or mm-hmm. did he wait till after? You know, what yeah. was the timeline of all of this? Yeah. But I think there's also an aspect of, so that that's the context in which he's in. But then there's his choice, that even in the perfect circumstances, he may have chose the same thing, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you made the comment about like how is how taking his life was taking control. Like, dive into that because that that's interesting. Well, just so just from my studying of the reasons people commit suicide and just having to knowing several people who have committed, committed suicide or attempted committing suicide, it often doesn't look bad from the outside. When we look at these people's lives, the commonality is this feeling of powerlessness, this feeling of a lack of control over one's circumstances or one's own life, even if everything on the outside looks good. So with Judas's situation, he had already reached out to the religious entity of his, of the main religion of that time and one that he would have grown up in. He had already gone to them to say, I am a sinner. He was doing the right thing. I don't know if he thought that they were gonna tell him how to repent for those sins and to make it right with God. And then when they were so apathetic towards him and showing complete lack of concern for him, did he see his soul as being lost? Did he see himself as being even more powerless to overcome his own guilt? Yeah, and I get that. Yeah, what's interesting is there with is just the contrast between, and, and I think perhaps what I, when I, one of the things that's unfolding here is everyone is trying to control in their different ways, and they're trying to use Jesus as a pawn, but it's not working out the way they wanted or expected, and so they 
their response to that is is almost their their um, their their raw um, character, if you will. Right, just carnal That's carnal emotions. Yeah, they're just you know this is I they almost like they reverted perhaps back to a version of themselves they were before they even met Jesus. Right before they were became the disciples. Yeah, um, David, what what else would you add to that? Well, it's interesting the reversion. You know if. if they're suddenly thinking, I've been living a lie, you know, I've been following this person, um, you know, giving up everything to, to um, you know, exclusively follow Jesus for, you know, several years. And, and now at the end of the season, he's not who they thought they, that he was. Um, you know, maybe that does cause you to question everything, all the growth, all of the, the, the personal and spiritual development that's happened um, if you're not living the story that you thought that you were, the narrative mm. that you thought was unfolding. Uh, the, the thing I was going to say that's interesting about Peter is he doesn't do anything to try to make it right. Um, compared to Judas, you know, immediately going, you know, I want to repay the money that I gained from, from accepting this bribe. And, and, you know, it seems to be that he's, he's trying to atone for his sin. Um, he, he's, you know, in a lot of ways responding how I would, if I got, caught doing something, you know, I, I, um, you know, cheated on my taxes, you know, it'd be, you know, can, how, can I repay this? How, how do I, how do I make this right? And, and, um, you don't see that from Peter, which I think is interesting compared to Judas, that Judas is responding in a lot of ways, um, how we naturally respond to being caught, um, you know, defined by a failure, um, is, is how can I, uh, you know, redeem my name or, or restore my legacy, you know, so that I'm not defined by this, this one failure. And, mm. and, um, so he, he goes all the way to, to the point of taking his own life to say, look how sorry I am, you know, look how, um, yeah. you know, contrite I am. And, um, you know, you don't see any of that from Peter. He just takes that shame and that, that, you know, probably feeling of, of, having betrayed his, his Lord and, and takes it to Jesus, even though it's gotta be uncomfortable to, to face Jesus. And, and, you know, in that moment of making eye contact to say, you know, I betrayed you, um, you know, that's, that's what Judas, I guess, didn't have the courage to, to do was to, to face, um, the consequences without, uh, mm -hmm. just trying to, you know, atone for his own sin. Yeah. The thing that, you, uh, that's, I mean, you said a lot there that we could certainly dive into. One of the things that really, I guess, resonated with me is just the difference between what we expect and what's real. And, and I guess perhaps how deceived we are in buying into that, that dream world, that perception bubble. And it, it gets, it gets popped at some point. And I think that's all something we can relate to. Um, you know, Talitha, you want to, dive into that from your own experiences oh getting the expectations completely popped yeah what oh, you yeah, thought yes. was one thing and what <laughs> reality was was a whole nother oh yeah um because I grew up pretty fundamentalist evangelical and thought forever that we were the good guys we did everything right mm -hmm. and as I've gotten older, even, looked, even among other Christians, like you were the yeah. right Christians. Oh, yeah, we, no, but, we were the right Christians. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and Catholics were not Christian. Like those Absolutely. didn't count. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I was in college when I found out that that was false. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but there was a lot of getting out in the world and seeing beyond the little homeschool Christian bubble I grew up in 
and realizing that the church has hurt a lot of people mm-hmm. and it's been behind a lot of atrocities around the world for centuries mm-hmm. because they all thought they were doing the right thing. And it was like, wait a minute, we're the Pharisees in this story. We're not Jesus. We're not the persecuted. We're the ones making yeah. it harder for everybody else to just live their life. And so realizing that was kind of mind blowing and blew it, all of my perceptions out of the water. Was it instantaneous or was it a slow process that unfolded over time, over years? I think it was a fairly slow process. It picked up speed in college because I started, I was just around a lot more people that believed differently than I did. Then like I had, you know, your average, like after school jobs, like I worked at a restaurant and I, you know, I taught gymnastics for a bit and yeah, with Ashley. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I was exposed in like little ways then and so I had like little glimpses into how people thought but it wasn't until college where I was on my own surrounded by people who believed differently than I did and I had to reconcile it and Mm. reconcile why some of them weren't Christian because I didn't I knew no one who wasn't a Christian everyone I knew was a Christian growing up so that was a foreign concept to be like wait why aren't you a Christian and then hearing the stories of, oh, well, you know, I'm gay. And if I got kicked out of my Mm. house or my, you know, I got kicked out of my church Mm -hmm. and hearing stories like that. One after the next. One after the other was just, it was so horrifying to be like, wait a minute, that's not what God's love is about at all. So how do you, how did you reconcile that difference? Like here's Jesus. And then here are all these people I grew up with that said they were following him, but right. I don't think you like him. So how, how did you, how did you reconcile that or explain it? Um, I mean, I basically, I realized that it, it's one of those, it's the tale as old as time. It's the religious leaders think they're doing all the right things, but it's all in the name of power. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And that's all it feels like it ever will be sometimes is that it's, it's just about power and who mm-hmm. controls the purse strings and who, you know, manipulates the political leaders and who knows all of that stuff. And it's, I don't know if I've entirely reconciled it because <laughs> it's just kind of, yeah, especially over the last five years. Yeah. It's been rather disheartening um, to see who I thought were the good guys really prove themselves to not be. Mm-hmm. Even members of my own family that I thought were good Christians have said some stuff over the past few years that have really made me take a good hard look at who I'm around and who my kid's going to be around when he gets older mm-hmm. and reconciling that that's not who I want to raise my kid to be. And that's not the environment I want to raise my kid in. Yeah. So the, the indoctrination to good Christianity is going to start <laughs> real young. <laughs> so Ashley, you know, 
what would you say is the difference between and i don't you know with between someone who is who is an honest follower of christ and is screwing up along the way failing versus someone that's just corrupt to the core i think as, as some of what talitha was inferring yeah so i think a person who's just screwing up along the way is just really a good example of how we all are. We're all screwing up along the way who we would consider to be somebody who would, who would make the statement, I am a Christian. Um, those are usually the people who, if we're talking about just believe that there's, who aren't burdened with the trauma of indoctrinated religion from a young age, but who accept that their sins can be forgiven and don't define who they are in the end versus somebody who is truly corrupt, who weaponizes religion for their own gain, regardless of who it hurts along the way. Um, and I do believe that those types of people can still be redeemed through repentance and reconciliation. Um, but to touch on Talitha's point about reconciling the, this way of now viewing, of having to view people who claim to be Christians, but, are, but who do seem to be along the lines of Pharisees, more along the lines of Pharisees than along the lines of Jesus, is just the, for me, it was recognizing that people will weaponize religion for their own gains and weaponize religion in their fear of things that are different than them. Um, and that it happens across all religions at all times. Um, and so for me, realizing that that's not what those religions are about, that that is actually what, is, what people are doing, that truly speaks to the fallenness of human beings. Mm -hmm. um so for me that's kind of how i have it i think david has touched on it a little bit more in some of our chats david how do you you got something to add to my question to my answer yeah i mean i think uh for sure grace is messy and so when you when you say um you know that that um people try to weaponize it you know i think what it is is it's still trying to get that sense of control um yeah. if if somebody does something wrong and, and that's what the law was. I mean, until Jesus death and resurrection, um, you know, at the time of Jesus, Judas, assuming that his suicide was before, uh, Jesus was, uh, raised from the dead. Um, you know, there was no defeat of death. There was no, um, you know, your, your sins and your, um, failures did define you. And, and mm -hmm. unless you had something to, to atone for that, um, you know, sacrifice or, or, you know, whatever it was, you know, you had to earn your way back into, um, I would say into grace, but it wasn't grace. It was, you had to earn your way back into good standing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's all that the law brought. And, and I think, um, we let that thinking creep into our thinking about grace and the gospel message. And, and it really confuses us because, you know, the idea of giving somebody grace that doesn't deserve it, um, it just, it, it flies in the face of, of everything that seems like it should be right and just. And, um, and, and so I think that's, you know, it's interesting that Judas was living in that paradigm and, and, you know, he basically had done something that was worthy of dying and, and, you know, executed himself to say, you know, I, I uh, this defined me and, and I can't make this right. And, and so, so, 
um, when we go into that mindset, we condemn ourselves, I think, um, and, and we condemn people around us. We, we see God as this, um, you know, law doling out um, all-powerful being, not, not you know, the, the God that would send Jesus to, to lay down his life um, for mm-hmm. people that didn't deserve it. And, and, um, and once that thinking creeps in, I think just the power piece takes over. And, and that's kind of what happened with Judas. I mean, you see it throughout his time following Jesus that he's, you know, taking some money on the side. He's, he's obviously, um, you know, still, still got this uh, kind of penchant for, um, you know, taking care of himself. And, uh, and he's not fully wholeheartedly following Jesus. And, and I think that might be the reason that he struggled to, um, to reconcile that. Um, you know, possibly Jesus could forgive him for what he'd done. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of piggyback, piggyback back again off of what David was saying is that yeah, old, similar to like old habits <laughs> died. <laughs> Did I get that right? Old <laughs> habits kind of died hard. Judas mm-hmm. would have been raised during a time when your sins could be repented for with a price, a, a sacrifice, the Leviticus laws that the Jews followed talk in depth, you know, there's so many of them. He would, he had been with Jesus for just a short time of his life compared to the way he was raised. And I know for me personally, I constantly have to fight against the way I was raised and realizing that that is wrong and not, and go moving forward and not having this crushing shame or crushing guilt of being told that if I did these things, I was going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. And realizing that that was wrong, but that I still struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like Judas was reverting back to the way he was raised in the Jewish religion of his time compared to the short yeah. time that he had been with Christ. Well, my, my impression too, is that the, the religious leaders are, they're a voice in his ear. Right. Um, throughout the whole time he's following Christ, as far as I can tell. And, and, and that's, that's playing, you know, part of it is Judas was using Jesus for his, his and outcome. But here we realized that he was being used by the religious leaders for their desired outcome. Right. And, you know, it's just, it's like a Russian, uh, Russian nesting dolls of, of mm-hmm. control and power that just, mm-hmm. okay, who's controlling, who's controlling, who's, and then where does going. it go? <laughs> that's, that's a great way of describing that. Yeah. So, you know, let's, I guess, dive in a little bit to the, the, on the religious leader side of it. Um, and the fact that they, they didn't care. Um, it wasn't their problem, um, that they didn't want to use the money in the treasury. Um, cause that would be payment for murder. <laughs> um, Talitha, what, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> um, but yeah, like what Ashley mentioned earlier, the, the irony of no we can't take this money back it was used for murder and it's like what did you think it was leaving the treasury for in the first place (laughs) um but it it boggles my mind that they could see his grief and his remorse and his guilt Mm -hmm. and you know there is something in their law i mean they had what 600 and something laws at that point it's like you know there was something in their laws that they could have told them to do <laughs> you know there was yeah. well and, and they, that's, and they yeah, that's, didn't yeah that's one of those what ifs like what if they had actually responded with compassion yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Or right. just responded with, we need two white doves. Go or, get oh, them, yeah. bring them back. Yeah. <laughs> need a sheep, whatever it was at the time. Yeah. And that would have been it. And Judas right. probably would have accepted that and moved on. Yeah. But because but, they were like, yeah, it's not my problem, dude. You figured this out. And yeah. he didn't know what to do. I think it is that they were just wanting to be rid of them because he wanting to be rid of him because he was the thing that tied them mm-hmm. to Jesus's death. Yep. So they couldn't blame it. Ready. It's, it's true. I mean, Judas was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Judas was the loose end because otherwise <laughs> they could just blame Rome. I think he, they were coming for him next. Yeah. I would not be surprised. Yeah. David, what, how, how do we make sure that we're not those religious leaders? Boy, and that's how a, do, it's how, a how, do we know, how do we know we're not them? Um, but I, I definitely think that they were mostly concerned about their control of the, the situation. Um, so when we get um, mostly concerned about uh, being in control or feeling like we are um, you know, keeping all the laws, I think that's where we're in danger of going down that road. Um, whether it's, you know, we're self-protection, you know, somebody might know something about me that, that would, you know, make me unclean or, or you know, could tarnish my reputation. Um, and so I'm going to tie up a loose end there. Or whether it's, you know, we're going to, um, you know, maintain the system of, of you've got to earn salvation. You've got to earn your, your uh, redemption um, to, to be able to stay in good graces or stay, stay in good standing with the church or, or with religion. Um, I think that's where we begin to go down that road of, of um, reputation management and, and image management over um, actually being curious about what's really going on. And, and I think that's why they were able to miss Jesus. And that's why they were uh, able to be so cavalier towards Judas and, and his remorse and repentance because um, they were primarily concerned about, you know, their control and their uh, ability to, to um, be in charge of whatever's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ashley, what would you say to those questions? David does touch on a great point of recognizing when we are trying to be in control of situations. Um, we I mean, even in myself, I do notice that I act outside of my typical character when trying to control situations. I think having, being incredibly self-aware and having friends that hold you to a high level of accountability and just really being honest with yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable and scare you is a way to constantly be checking for those characteristics. Um, It's so easy to see it in other people. And I think a thing that I started doing several years ago was I noticed myself calling out other people's bad behaviors, but never being self my own. And so now what I do is when I see a behavior in someone else, it immediately makes me check myself where I, or someone else could say the same thing about me in another situation. But like, that a me- like as a, a mirror. Right. That takes a high level of self-awareness. And I, by no stretch of the imagination, I'm perfect at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, 
I think the community is definitely a huge piece because having people to reflect back what they see in you or, or mm -hmm. um, you know, what you see in them and then evaluate if you see that in yourself. Another way um, that I've, uh, a question I've started asking myself is, um, what if I'm not as right as I think I am? Um, mm. and, and especially, um, you know, when you start thinking about politics and uh, religion and politics and, and you know, religion and, and uh, social issues and, and, you know, people are quick to take sides and, and um, kind of create their allies and say, you know, surround themselves with people that are sure that they're right and, and will reaffirm that they're right. Um, instead, maybe it's better to, to question um, what would I do here if I wasn't right or what would it look like? How would I know if I'm not as yeah. right as I think I am? Yeah, and I was uh, listening to Adam Grant on the Knowledge Product Project podcast and he, um, he made a comment that was really interesting. He said um, one of the kind of habits he's developing is what would it take for me to change my mind about this thing and actually writing it down? And, um, and then he also explored like the idea of like, okay, what's the, not just making a case for what I want, but what's the case against it and writing that down as well. But these, these exercises to, to recognize, to humble ourselves and to recognize our fallibility. And um, I mean, some of these matters, they're so, they're so severe or the consequences are so severe that like to not do these things would be foolish in a lot of ways. Um, but sometimes these situations unfold and we don't necessarily know that they're coming. And so we don't prepare for them ahead of time. And when they hit, we respond the way we respond. I think one of the things that stuck out with what, what you said um, was just the, I, the community piece. And in contrast to that, the isolation of Judas. Um, Talitha, what would you speak into about just the idea of isolating ourselves and, and the danger of doing that? Oh, that's what I did in college. Mm. I severely self-isolated and didn't realize I was doing it um, until I had some major bouts of depression. And it, it took me like going to my parents and saying, I'm pretty sure I have depression. Cause you know, the little checklist they have online, I was like, yeah, I have eight out of 10. I should, we should go see someone. But it was that, it wasn't until things started unraveling around me and I realized how I wasn't handling stress well and I wasn't talking to people. Like I would go to class and I would go back to my apartment mm. and I would study by myself and I ate by myself. And like, I had roommates, but we were on opposite schedules. And it is amazing how in your head you can live when you isolate that much mm -hmm. and how you create your own echo chamber where your mind will confirm everything you think about yourself, no matter how completely crazy it is. Yeah. Because <laughs> it could get crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because you're the only thing that's checking you is you. Which, and unless you have the force, unless you have the capability of seeing it and recognizing it for what it is and going, oh no, this, I, okay, help, please. This is not good. And this is bad. Yeah. But it took like a, like a, almost a, like a panic attack for me to realize what was going on and realizing that at the time, like, I don't think I was suicidal, but I probably wasn't super far from it. Mm -hmm. just in the amount of, of how isolated I had made myself yeah, and stuff. And it's so, it can be so dangerous and it, 
it always struck me that Judas went to the church leaders. He didn't go to the disciples. He didn't go to his 11 other friends and say, I screwed up. Mm -hmm. He went to the religious leaders first, which is, I'm going to kind of get because they were in on it and his other friends probably didn't know. And he didn't want to have to out himself and say, yeah, yeah, I'm the reason this is all going down. He would have had to face, because none of them expected Judas to betray Jesus. Um, And when he did, that was surprising, I think. And so he would have had to face them. And yeah, that's a whole nother dynamic I didn't even consider. Owning owning your own mistakes is difficult and humbling. And you have to be willing to completely make yourself vulnerable to being hurt. And it is a difficult thing to do. That does bring up a pretty interesting other point is what do we know about the relationship between Judas and the other disciples and what made Judas, how did this story play out? Did Judas first approach the Pharisees and say that he would betray Jesus or did the Pharisees seek him out? Yeah. Well, I, my impression, yeah, there's not a lot of details to go into that, but there's a few things that make me lead to a particular conclusion. One is that isolation piece. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand, Judas was one of the disciples that came from a different area. So mm-hmm. he was kind of an outsider in the group. Um, he, um, you know, when I think about people that are, that are um, like human trafficked or, or um, kidnapped or, you know, t- taken advantage of abuse, a lot of them are, they're, they're usually like from broken homes and have broken histories and are broken people in a lot of ways. And those mm-hmm. people are, um, the most susceptible to that type of crime. So I want, I, part of me wonders if, if those were similar dynamics unfolding here that may have right. contributed to um, him being uh, participating or picked off or, or maybe he, he reached out to them. I don't, I don't know the specifics um, or I don't know if we have enough details to know that answer, but yeah. those are yeah. a couple of things that come to mind. Yeah, it would be interesting because if... Judas was already a broken person, but had been with Jesus for a few years and had been around the other disciples, were those relationships already broken? I know there's a verse um, in John that talks about them saying Judas took money out of the money bag. Um, Yeah, if they all knew he was stealing... Right. Jesus wasn't doing anything about it, that would isolate him further. Right. Mm -hmm. So was he already... Was he already not with the uh, not with the in group of the other eleven disciples? Was he already? Would they have even been in a place to forgive him? Were they had they already made him up to be less than them in their mind? Because Peter had no problem going back to them, right? Yeah, although, I mean, a lot of that was after the resurrection that they came together. That's true. A lot of that was after the resurrection. So it's, it's hard to tell. Well, it's another that. of that mistiming opportunity there. But it's hard, it's, I think some of them probably clumped together, but I don't, I don't know to what degree. David, what were you going to say? I just think it's really interesting, that dynamic of, of what shame does and isolates us, um, especially you know, sh- shame when, when you know something that you've done that's wrong that nobody else knows. Um, I think that's even more isolating than just mm-hmm. having done something wrong and, and everybody knows it. 
um, you know, th there's a level of shame that's like I'm embarrassed and, and I hate that um, people know this, but when there's a shame that is like a secret um, that, that you've maintained an image, um, I feel like that's even more isolating. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so he probably was, I mean, even if only in his own head, you know, isolating himself or, or managing his reputation around the guys that were closest to him. And, and that would have been, um, you know, only compounded by now I've got this even bigger sin that, you know, they didn't even know about the, the stealing money stuff. And now I've got this, you know, betraying Christ and, and him dying uh, mm -hmm. for my sin, um, literally, you know, it, it, I think that that would have just compounded that. And like you said, Talitha, um, I think that the power of just isolation, um, you know, once, once you've got some shame um, about something in yourself, we, we just, you know, since, since the garden of Eden, you know, it's, it's, I know so, I've done something wrong and I want to hide that from, from yeah. everybody. I mean, yeah. I want to hide in the forest, cover myself mm -hmm. and then, uh, just pretend like, uh, God can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I want to pull back to Ashley, you talked about the mirror of, you know, calling out someone else versus yourself. And I think there's a, there's, there's a variety of ways that we can sort of dive into Judas's mindset because we don't have enough details to know exactly what it is, right? We talked about the control, but I think there is one that's possibly like a policing mindset that he perhaps was there to, um, that he thought Jesus was a false Messiah, that he wasn't um, who he said he was. And he was there to make sure that um, he kept Jesus in check, so to speak. Um, what, what do you all, you know, what, Ashley, what do you think about that as a, as a, is that a potential, um, point of view of, of Judas that, that he slowly sort of built resentment and, and, um, bitterness towards Jesus because he thought he was wrong and he was right. It's completely possible that he was looking at it from the, again, being raised in the Jewish religion with the prophecy of the Messiah coming to bring freedom to the Jewish people. It is possible that he was looking at that and saying, well, if this guy is who he claims to be, and I see him deviating from that path, maybe that it is my higher calling as one of these disciples to guide his path. Yeah. Cause I and, see a lot of people, like even in the political realm and I can even see myself like as this sort of like guru, that's going to, pave the way, but I actually have it completely wrong or that person has it completely wrong. And they, oh, yeah. they think they they're there to, to make things right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And often I feel like when we have that mentality that it often ends up making it worse, which is definitely mm. what happened in this situation. Yeah. And whether or not Judas believed or knew or had any inkling about the, that the crucifixion, he may have known that that was their plan and just truly believed that Jesus would never allow himself to succumb to that. Um, and then there would also be that fear. Cause I think I heard this in one of your other podcasts. We, we are always willing to die fighting for what we believe is right, but we're never willing to suffer or have shame for what we may be wrong about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is Judas really did believe that the Messiah was coming and he seemed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and wanted to force him into that situation and seemed to be ready to fight to the end for that, what he envisioned that looking like. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, it, part of it is like, was there a clear vision, or was it just a cloudy future? Was it just a cloudiness of, uh, of a short-term mindset? Yeah, it appeared very short term because he didn't see past the possibility of mm-hmm. his plan failing. Mm-hmm. He went into it, appeared to go into it. Cause as David said earlier, 30 pieces of silver was not worth throwing your life away for. No. It, wasn't it wasn't like gonna, an amount of money that was going to take care right, of him. That wasn't life. setting him up no. for life. He didn't, he wasn't going to retire to Greece somewhere <laughs> and live a Mediterranean lifestyle. <laughs> He was definitely going to have to, there was going to need to be some plan B there. He didn't disappear. It seemed very short-sighted. I really do think that Judas believed he was forcing Jesus's hand. Yeah. Yeah. And did not see the possibility of that failing. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause he was, he was so convinced for if, in that mindset um, that it was that, that to, like there was no being wrong. Like it was either he was right or, or his ultimate demise was. It was a very all or nothing. Bet. Yeah. 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 He put all his eggs in that basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's and funny. It, that kind of reminds me of the big lie and and the way that people responded to, um, you know, evidence that would say, mm. you know, what you thought was happening, isn't what was happening. Um, mm. and and there's people that just you know even to this day are still sure that it, it's, you know, false evidence that, that yeah. the narrative that they originally latched onto has to be true. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it, but it, but it seems like that has to be attached to something deeper. And that is, that is the escalation that, that perhaps if you talk to that person five years ago, they would never have imagined it escalating to that level. But mm-hmm. slowly and surely we, we end up in those places where we're cornered and our pride takes over. Right. And that's all we see. We, we accumulate more and more of our uh, reputation or our life. Our, you know, we've invested more and more in, in what we believe is going on. So yeah. I think, you know, it gets harder and harder to say, well, what if, what if I'm not in the story I think I'm in? Um, yeah. You know, the implications get bigger and bigger. And so I think our cognitive bias just gets, mm-hmm. you know, we're quick to assure ourselves that we have to be right. Because if we're not, yeah. then, then everything unravels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think the part of that is to, to actually fight against that is to to have a posture and a disposition that I could be wrong and that the story that I'm building, um, you know, what what's some other feedback to contribute to that? Because I think it even if we don't want that to happen, it, without the right posture, I, I think it's almost inevitable, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So even even with community, you can surround yourself with like-minded people. You can surround yourself with other mm -hmm. Pharisees or, or, um, you know, people that believe like you do politically or or whatever. And, and, you know, even though you've expanded the echo chamber outside your own head, you know, you really haven't. (laughs) You just surrounded yourself. I mean, social media makes that really easy that we can find Mm -hmm. people that think and see the world exactly how we do Mm -hmm. and and will assure us that we're right. And and I think that lets us go a lot further, a lot faster. down a, a wrong road, um, even with 
community around us can almost reinforce that if we're not careful mm -hmm. to curate people that you know mm -hmm. will tell us what we don't want to hear. Yeah. So let's let's dive into that concept of legacy and rapport and reputation and renown. Um, you know, obviously a lot of people found out about this about Judas's death and they named this field the field of blood. Um, but but there is an interesting discussion there just about the legacy of Judas and and our legacies and how does that intersect and so what would you add to add to that David when you when you think about it through that lens? You know, I, I think it's really interesting what Judas' legacy would have been if he had just disappeared with the money. Um, mm. You know, it's, it, he he would have been the guy that that you know betrayed the risen Christ for for 30 silver coins um and and maybe the story would have ended differently if he'd seen the resurrection but uh, you know i i think he realized in that moment that's not the legacy he wanted um and so he set out trying to say well i don't want to be the guy that that you know got 30 coins you know for betraying christ um and and then he just kept going down that road of of i've got to redeem my legacy um or or redeem my my role in the story i don't want to be known as the the villain and the story, and um, I think it's really interesting how, how we, we kind of do that um, same thing. Um, you know, we don't want to be the villain in the story. There's, there's a song right now that's like, <laughs> it's okay, I can be the villain in your story. Um, and, and that's a really tough thing to be just okay with the idea of um, accepting our, our responsibility um, and that it might tarnish our legacy. Yeah, and that's, that's what we saw with Christ is Jesus accepted the villain role i guess in a sense that they made him they made him the villain and crucified him um and yet that was undeserved so but yeah that's that's interesting that just the um that he didn't want his legacy to be that and he tried to erase what he had done but but he couldn't it's it was irreversible in a sense and and i guess even the way he responded almost cemented that terrible legacy that he had right yeah, but I think on the flip side, there there is a legacy there, of perhaps a redemptive angle of it, where where we can see Judas's story for our benefit in a in a positive way. That had that story had he not been in the story and had he not played out, we wouldn't learn the things that he he should have learned that we can now learn. I think that's another side of it. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Ashley? Yeah, I think Judas's story really does show us that we can be our most harsh critic, our harshest critic. Jesus spoke about redemption for all sins. And Judas, even knowing that, could not bring himself to accept that he would be recipro reciprocating of that forgiveness or somebody who could re receive that forgiveness. He did not believe it. And I think we often do that thing when we do things that we are ashamed of or regret or have guilt over, we don't see how people can forgive us, how we can come back from that, how it can change the way people perceive us that's why we try and do like all these things to make it right um and or try and control a situation to manipulating it into something that makes us look better um so i think it does 
just kind of opened my eyes to being like, hey, even that that's something I need to be aware of is how I perceive myself. Like I probably shouldn't be harder on myself than Jesus would have been on me. Because mm. that's a, yeah, that's interesting because it's, it's very, it's almost a rejection of, of Jesus right. to do that and what he's saying. Right. And it is clear that, and it does seem like Judas did doubt that. Maybe yeah. after all this whole situation that Judas did also have this sense of shame, but also this just feeling of deception for, because if he didn't live to see Jesus's resurrection, he may have died believing that Jesus was not who he said he was. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, either way, he did say like, I have, I betrayed innocent blood. So regardless, he at least understood that Jesus was innocent of whatever right. they were saying. And he probably was like, I'm the guilty party, not mm -hmm. him. He's the one being punished, not me. I need to go punish myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in some ways, I think that's still the biggest obstacle to accepting the the gospel message is that, you know, it's unfair or it's it's not just that, um, you know, that, that we have to do something to redeem ourselves. You know, it's kind of the, I don't know if that's a Western culture idea, but, you know, that, that it's, um, you know, if you want to be the honorable person in the story, um, you, you have to um, take responsibility for your own actions and you have to, to make things right. Um, you, you can't just let somebody else, um, you know, pay the price for, for your crime or your, your sin. Um, mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, I think that's kind of the biggest obstacle to accepting grace. Um, it's just that it's, um, it's undeserved. Yeah, I, I have responsibility for my own sin and I need to take care of it versus accepting that Jesus um, pays for that sin on our behalf. And then out of that, out of that forgiveness and gift, I am then compelled to do the same for the next person. And that is the fuel, that is the life that flows through me. Um, that should inform how I treat and love other people because I see what has been done for me and I'm paying that forward. So David, what are your uh, final words, final thoughts, things you wanted to bring up that maybe you didn't get a chance? I, I just think, um, I, I know for me personally, when I know that I failed and I've fallen short, um, I, I, the narrative in my head is that the the Christian life should be one of of um, continuous improvement. Um, that today should be better than we were yesterday, and um, you know I think all the disciples kind of fly in the face of that. That um, you know they were all still making mistakes, and and you know Jesus was okay with that. He knew that they were going to make mistakes before they made the mistakes. You know, and he knew that they were going to betray him. That Peter was going to deny him, um, and, and um, so for some reason I have in my head that. Um, you know, God expects me to do better today than I did yesterday and better tomorrow than today. And, and if I don't, then, then I fail. And, and that self-condemnation, um, starts to creep in. And I think Judas is really, a um, a cautionary tale to say, if, if we choose to condemn ourselves, you know, Jesus will let us do that. God will, will let us condemn ourselves for our own sins and, and, um, give us the punishment we deserve, but that's not what he wants. And that's why Jesus came to, to take that, uh, weight of that sin and condemnation off of us. Um, mm -hmm. so I think that's just, 
looking at the story through Judah's perspective, I think that's what makes it so tragic is that he had available to him redemption and, yeah. and escape from the condemnation that he inflicted on himself. Yeah. And, and I, I suppose, I suppose that your expectation of this story and of him was different when you came to that conclusion than when you started exploring this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was just the one dimensional bad guy before, um, you know, there, there was no opportunity for redemption. And I think um, that, that's really the biggest thing is that, um, you know, he was just like the other disciples, um, it, at least seemingly, you know, he was, he was failing along the way, just like the rest of them. But, um, you know, his, his ultimate failure, while we look at that as like the, the one, you know, unforgivable sin in all of eternity, uh, really was just a, another failure. Um, mm -hmm. that was no bigger to God or to Jesus than, um, than any other. Yeah. And I, for me, that's so reassuring to know that, you know, God, um, knows those things and yet he still offers that gift and that invitation to participate. Um, despite all those, those feelings that are, that have happened and will continue to happen. So, yeah. um, Ashley, what are your final thoughts? What else would you like to, to say here? Kind of just piggybacking off of David's analysis there is just looking at the story of Judas and realizing that you're, you are your own worst enemy in your own mind. And that when the biggest thing about making mistakes and committing things that we find feel guilty or shame over is that taking the path of Peter led to the better end result, going back and repenting and asking for forgiveness and not taking it into our own hands, but trusting that others will offer up grace the same way that I try to offer grace to other people, but not just seeing myself as the one who's always going to be condemned of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, there's, there's a lot for us to learn and to, to process and to grow in a story that, that, that can be so easily simplified. And it's in that complexity that, that we get these kind of really interesting and unexpected for me insights. Um, this is one of those sections that I was like, okay, what is there to talk about? And then realizing there's a lot to talk about here. So Talitha, what, what would be your final final thoughts and words for us well in looking at um judas and we compared to a little bit with peter and how they um how they both approached their their different betrayals just the idea that you can't force god to do what he's not gonna do mm -hmm. and i think it's a lot of stories like this remind me that I don't always know God's plan. And sometimes his, most of the time, his plan is better than mine. Yeah. And I may not understand it and it may not look anything like I think it should look, but it's always better in the end. Yeah. 
And I just have to trust that and not put God in this little box that I want him to fit in. And I want him to act and behave exactly this way because it makes my life so much easier. Um, And that's just not how it works. And you see what happens when people expect God to do and behave in certain ways and he doesn't. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a a beautiful uh, connection to the, to Christ's prayer in the garden, the agony um, not my will, but your will be done. Right. Yeah. And as much as we might not know what God's will is, or as much as we might not want it in the most severe degree, are we willing to trust him with that? Um, and it reminds me of a, a quote that I'll paraphrase from C.S. Lewis, but he talks about this, his conception of God, um, is con- continually shattered by God and it, and then it shatters and then it's rebuilt and then it and then it's broken again and then it's rebuilt and it, it, each time it he gets a better picture of who God is in that process. So, well, thank you so much for joining and having the conversation. That was uh, great and I, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Jason. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.